Mark Durand, thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School podcast series today. Uh, you've done some, some research into leadership and motivation. What were your motivations for doing this particular research and what did you find? I spent a couple of years with the Cambridge Rowers and my primary motivation, to be frank, is probably that I love rowing. Um, I was always very curious also about what takes place behind those um, light blue doors on the River Cam. Um, it's very quite sort of secretive society of, of very um, strong wills and very talented individuals. And, and to get a window on, on not only what goes on inside that building, but also into the minds of these individuals themselves um, is really probably what drove me to, to do this. And was it very difficult to get them to cooperate to actually get this research off the ground? You had curiosity and, and you wanted to, to see this highly motivated group of people and their reasons for engaging in the endeavour mm-hmm. and um, why they wanted to succeed. But just give us a little bit of background as to, yeah. to how you went about it. Um, actually, it took a fair amount of time to try and negotiate this piece of research. I, um, I contacted the president and coach, chief coach at the time, Donald, uh, Duncan Holland, sorry, um, early in the year, and it took at least three or four months before I could get a meeting and get a go-ahead for the research. In fact, I didn't get a go-ahead until the, the day before the campaign was about to start. In the meantime, I spent the entire summer reading up on ethnography, on uh, high-performance teams and so on, um, not knowing if the investment would ever pay off. Unfortunately, it did, but it was a lot of work and certainly on my part. Um, and, and it tends to be typical of the type of research I do. I mean, I'm an ethnographer, which means that I study people by living with them full-time. It's, it's a very old-fashioned way of doing research. It's a very risky way of doing research. But I, you know, there's nothing quite like it. It gets such a, 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 um, uh, such a level of detail uh, in social life that you don't get from sending out a survey or, or, or even through interviews. And you're quite a tall guy. How did they hide you in the boat? Did you actually get to go in the boat from them, or did you cycle up and down on the river's edge as the as the coxswains do? Um, I'm I'm about six two six three, and many of the rowers are anywhere from six three to six eight. So they're very very tall people. Um, so I'm not not that tall compared to them. I wouldn't be in a boat. I'm not good enough. Uh, I love rowing. I, I I row myself, but not at the same level. The the people in the boat just by um, for, for the sake of sort of contextualizing the research, uh, are very high achievers. We had two reigning world champions in the 07 boat, an Olympic gold medalist who won gold in 2000 at Sydney, and a, um, uh, an oarsman who just won gold in Beijing. So we've got sort of two Olympic gold medalists, two world champions, two people who'd won bronze at world championship level. So you've got people that are young, really bright, and really good at what they do. And so I, I, my rowing is no comparison. If I were in the boat, I'd slow them down. So it's something I just couldn't do. So you did cycle up and down at the edge or watch I, them? Well, actually, I watched from a boat. So I would drive a boat with the coach. Uh, I was on the coaching launch, and we'd sort of follow the boats along. And that's more or less what it is. I actually did row with them once, a very brief period, simply because one of the guys got a very serious back, uh, back, back pain. Um, and so what I did, I stripped down to my underwear, I had long underwear on, just to give me some flexibility, jumped in the boat, and was too afraid to row for being shown up to be a poor, poor oarsman. So that's, that's really the truth of the matter. <laughs> well, I'm glad you told us that story. But, but let's just get on to the serious side of your research now. Your observations and the relevance uh, of this particular endeavour in the boat race to high-performance teams in, in business... I, I believe you've got five major observations. Um, yes, these observations that I um, I thought might be relevant to to, um, to business life and these observations I often talk about with the executives that we teach here. Um, the first one is that what makes these people good can make them difficult too. 
Okay, so um, as I've already said, these are uh, very high-achieving individuals. They tend to be very strong-willed, have a great uh, level of confidence in their own intuitions. They can be surprisingly oblivious sometimes to the emotional effects they have on people around them. Um, so again, you want them desperately in the boat because they're good, but what makes them good can make them difficult too. Um, they tend to look at their own contributions often through roast into glasses, which is not unusual. Um, um, and there's some interesting research in uh, in business that sort of corroborates this. And, and um, 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 recently, a um, a consultant company did a piece of research where they asked 1,800 managers to answer two questions. Number one, how confident are you in your own ability to make good decisions? Um, 83% of the managers said they were either very confident uh, or confident in their ability to make good choices. The second question was very devious. They asked the same people, how confident are you in, in the abilities of those you work with most closely to make good choices? And uh, the response was 27%. Now, how can that be true? How can the people that we work with most closely be so much less competent <laughs> than we ourselves are? Um, but, you, you know, it's one of those traits that you find with people that are very high performer, uh, high performers in their own right, you know. Um, and so you can't really have your cake and eat it, too. Um, the consequence of that is that conflict is almost always just around the horizon and you need to be aware of that and as a as a coach or as a manager in business the sort of skills that probably will pay pay their dividends are not necessarily skills in foresight or planning uh, or uh, or controlling um, as we would traditionally describe management but it's really skills in conflict resolution and mediation and actually you might say that's been one of the great myths surrounding success that yeah creative, innovative people who are high achievers and have yeah. lots of ambition are difficult to manage. So that, that's not a myth. It's not a myth at all, no. I mean, having said that, uh, there's, a, there's a fair amount of variety within this, you know, what one might call alpha male uh, f- behavior. It's an all-male environment, with the exception of, of one woman, uh, who actually became quite important in the crew. Um, so not all of them are alike, but many of them generally share these sorts of traits. Um, and well, so it's how, not a myth. Yeah. How do you get them to, to work together? You know, the, the coxes are always small. How do they, do they just have loud voices so they shout a lot ah, at these right. uh, high-achieving people? Well, that's for the first part of the question. How do you get them to work together? Primarily by, by reminding them what's at stake. You know, they've got something in common that they want more than anything else, which is to win the boat race. Um, it's the only reason why the Cambridge University Boat Club exists and has, has done so since 1829. Uh, when the first boat race took place. We founded it a year before that. Um, as for the coxswain, um, it's a nice story about Rebecca Dowbiggin, because she's the only female in the crew. What she was able to do very, very well was to keep the guys calm in the boat. These guys were good, and they knew they were good, but socially they were fragile. And what she was able to do in the race, particularly at a, a moment in the race where they were lagging behind Oxford, and the automatic reaction would be to become nervous and to start focusing more on individual rather than collective effort, what she was able to do is to keep them calm. And if you listen to the recording of her talking through the race it's all about good boys now loose stay relaxed you know we're going to do this and they all ultimately um, she was able to remind them that they would outrow um, Oxford in a, in, a, in a war of attrition which is what they did but not by calling for blood but calling them to be calm well you can see that this might um, relate to other high performance teams including Gordon Brown's government at the moment when things are tough these high achieving individuals as a team begin to fragment begin to 
to work individually rather than collectively. Mm-hmm. Did, in terms of those five observations you make, find any other way apart from what you have is a good maternal manager there getting them to work together? Any other observations of how you can get these high performers, high achievers to work together and be successful? I think the first thing I said is really quite important, particularly from the point of leadership. You've, you know, it's, it's your job in part to continue to remind people why they do what they do and where their place is within this relatively small society. Um, what their performance looks like and how it is going to be measured, you know, with respect to the one overarching objective, whatever it may be. The difficulty in, in much of business life is that a lot of businesses or a lot of teams in businesses have objectives that change over time, whereas the world of, of boat race um, uh, rowing is, is a little simpler in that respect. The one objective never changes. We exist to beat Oxford um, every spring on, on the River Thames. Um, but nonetheless... You know the 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 the, the principal ob- obligation of leaders to continue to remind the people they work with most closely why what they do is important and what they are here for. When it comes to resolving conflicts, that conflict is being resolved, that people are being faced up to, not for the sake of clashing personalities, but for the sake of trying to resolve or come closer to the to to the single objective that matters most for them. That actually is not only helpful, but it's probably one of the, the again the core tasks of leadership. And without making any general observations, is there any way that that we can look at your research and think, well, it has relevance to ourselves, our daily business lives? I think if you, I mean, generally, if you work with people that are very talented or if you're recruiting the best people in the industry, they're going to be very difficult to deal with occasionally. So you've got to make some, you've got to make some allowances for bad behavior on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got to, uh, to learn how to anticipate conflicts and how to how to best resolve it. Um, so that's probably a take-home lesson I think is, is reasonably important. There are a few others um, um, that I think might be relevant, and I, I, I wonder if it's okay if I if I introduce those. Um, it may well be the case that in a high-performance team you will face all sorts of tensions all of the time. So, for instance. It may be that you and I cooperate on a particular research project, but we compete for a promotion opportunity or we compete for other resources or for the attention of our managers, superiors, whatever else it might be. Um, you've got this in rowing, but you've also got it even, you know, it's at almost the same level in, in business. It may be that I trust you, but I'm vigilant with you, respect to you as well because you are competing for the same place, the same seat in my, in my boat. Um, you'd love to control the... Uh, people you work with or the people you try to train at the same time you've got to leave them some autonomy to make their own mistakes because they won't learn otherwise so how do you manage these tensions in business and that's really really hard to do it's hard to do in rowing, it's really really hard to do in business it makes teams feel almost perpetually dysfunctional and I think the argument I'd like to propose is that that doesn't mean that they are dysfunctional, it's actually quite an effective way Uh, it gets the best out of the individuals and the best out of the teams um, and the last thing you might want to do is to try and manage out any competitive elements in a otherwise co- cooperative team. It's simply part of natural life. Um, it keeps the fire at people's feet. Um, and so it makes life awkward, but it doesn't mean it's, it's bad. Um, so we adopt the role of the cocks in the boat race and say, well, come on, guys, now calm down. You're going to win. Let's work together in a gentle voice. Well, you do, but it's not always straightforward. Let me give you an example of this. Um, people in teams, they, in high-performance teams, will invariably be quite ambitious, and they may have very clear ideas as to where they think they, 
they ought to rank you know, within the overall hierarchy or what sort of role they ought to play. And that may well be at variance with what you as a manager or as a leader think they ought to be doing. Now, the problem is that if you put people in a place where they're unhappy, they won't perform well. Um, they may not admit to it, but they will perform suboptimally. If you put them in a place where they want to be, they'll be happy and they perform better. The problem is, of course, if there's a situation in which you, you've, you've, you've got to make a very difficult choice whether to cater to someone's self-belief, to someone's, someone's interests, uh, and put them in a place where they want to be, um, or whether to fight that in the interest of fairness to the rest of the team, because you can't cater to everyone's wishes. Okay, So these are very difficult trade-off choices because ultimately all you care about is performance and you do want to get the best out of people. So it, it's not always about being the coxswain who tells people to be calm. It's always sometimes it's also sometimes about making these very difficult trade-off choices. But to what extent do I cater to what I know you want? And to what extent do I stick with my own beliefs as to where I think you should be and fight uh, and, and fight you on this issue in the kindest possible way because it's fair to the rest of the team. It seems to take a lot of maturity, a lot of nous, uh, and a lot of studying of management principles too. But just to go on, you've done this research. Um, what next? Um, I've got a, a couple of projects I would really like to be able to pull off. One of them involves the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Edinburgh's. You've got a similar mix of people that are very, very bright, very interdependent in making decisions concerning di- diagnosis, for instance, or discharge, in one of the most emotionally horrible places to be, which is the places where the sickest children go. How do they get on? How do they coordinate? How do they communicate effectively? Um, how do they make collective decisions on diagnosis? Um, another project involves a, um, another student society um, here in Cambridge, um, which really has become the breeding ground for some of the world's best-known comedians, and I'm hoping that will work out. Um, it's very, very early days now. Um, so far, things look reasonably positive. They're lovely people, but again, you've got very, very bright people that are fiercely competitive, interdependent, and at some level full of self-doubt as well. And so um, I'm interested to see what that world looks like from their point of view. What does it, what does it mean to compete in comedy? Um, um, how do these tensions that I've just illustrated play themselves out within a society of comedians? Um, so we'll see how this uh, works out, but I'm, I'm very much hoping it will. As a curious journalist, I'm curious in you, Dr. Mark Durand, do you just go where your intuition uh, and curiosity lead you? You've uh, studied one set of really talented, ambitious people, and you're now going to the opposite end of the social anthropological spectrum, it sees, one in terms of age to the hospital, and... and Two, in terms of values, the creative arts. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm extremely intuitive uh, yes, as a researcher. Uh, you, you've got to be to some extent. I've once been involved in a research project uh, which was generously funded. It's probably the most boring thing I've ever done. My heart wasn't in it. And so I think I've learned the hard way that you've got to do stuff that you enjoy doing and that you think might be of interest to a larger audience. Otherwise, you might as well give up. And so I'm very intuitive. Uh, I do stuff that I think is interesting. Um, but I try to do it as well as I can, um, um, both from a scholarly viewpoint, uh, but also from the point of view that I try to do the work I, I do as well as I can without hurting the people around me, which is not always an easy thing to to do, because invariably people will disagree with things that you say or, or opinions you form or conclusions you draw. Um, they feel like they maybe badly done by or that they've not been given sufficient airtime. And so getting a balance right is actually really, really hard to do, to be honest, intellectually. 
and yet try not to hurt the people that you that you deal with on an everyday basis in your research. So that's about trust, having the trust of the community and the objectivity to stand externally outside them as well as internally within them. Might it just be, and it's always difficult to ask a a what's next question, but but finally we might well find that from sector to sector or group of people to group of people, their values and what motivates them are entirely different. In my sense, it's actually almost the opposite. I think that people are very much alike in some respect when it comes to people that are generally they're bright and they're ambitious. I don't think they're all that different. They may have slightly different interests which draw them to different sectors of society, but at, at heart, I think they are... They share very similar insecurities, fear of failure, fear of being found out to be a fraud. Um, so I'm not sure that we're all that different after all. Dr Mark Durand, reader in strategy and organisations, we look forward to your future research as, as well as um, studying what you've done on leadership and the boat race too. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you.